You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual They figured it out with a pencil and a pad and a website. They figured it out. All this time, all us left-wingers, we wanted all of them, all those right-wingers, all those Trumpers, we wanted them to think that we wanted them to think that we wanted them to get vaccinated. But we only wanted them to think that because we knew that if they thought that we wanted them to get vaccinated, then they wouldn't get vaccinated, which is what we wanted all along for them not to get vaccinated. Because if they didn't get vaccinated, if they didn't do what we were only pretending we wanted them to do, they would die. Breitbart broke the story. Editor-at-large John Nolte has a piece up on Breitbart headlined, Howard Stern proves Democrats want unvaccinated Trump voters dead. Shock jock Howard Stern, who is not a universally beloved figure on the left, Stern lit into people who were refusing to get vaccinated. I'm going to read from the transcript. Fuck them. Fuck their freedom, said Stern. I want my freedom to live. I want to get out of the house. The other thing I hate is that all these people with COVID who won't get vaccinated are in hospitals clogging them up. I'm really of a mind to say, look, if you didn't get vaccinated and you got COVID, you don't get into a hospital. Go fuck yourself. You had the cure and you wouldn't take it. Apparently, it was this rant of Stern's that caused the scales to fall from John Nolte's eyes. He could suddenly see what was really going on. And he writes at Breitbart, leftists like Stern and CNN, LOL, and Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Anthony Fauci are deliberately looking to manipulate Trump supporters into not getting vaccinated. How are we doing that? Nolte explains, if I wanted to use reverse psychology to convince people not to get a life-saving vaccination, I would do exactly what Stern and the left are doing. I would bully and taunt and mock and ridicule you for not getting vaccinated, knowing the human response would be, hey, fuck you, I'm never getting vaccinated. He continues, a countless number of Trump supporters believe that they are owning the left by refusing to take a life-saving vaccine, a vaccine, by the way, that everyone on the left has taken. And it gets worse. Now the evil libs who want Trump voters dead, says Nolte, are pushing vaccine mandates. Not because we want everyone to get vaccinated and to save lives, even the lives of Trump voters. No, 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 no. It's a secret double probation, triple axle, backflip, reverse psychology effort to get Republicans to dig in their heels even more and keep refusing to get vaccinated so that they'll all die And Texas will turn blue and Beto will finally win an election and we won't have to take their guns from them because they'll all be too dead to use them. Next up, libs tell you they want trigger locks on your guns because we don't want your toddler to find his mother's gun in her purse while they're shopping at a Walmart in Idaho and blow your wife's head off, a thing that happened. But that's a lie, too. We say that we want trigger locks on your guns so you won't use trigger locks on your guns. And then your toddler will kill his mother and there's one less Trump voter in Idaho. And libs tell you that they support renewable energy in the hopes that you'll burn more coal. And so the cheap land we're buying up in Ohio and West Virginia from dead Trump supporters who refuse to get vaccinated will one day be valuable oceanfront property. Look, whatever it takes to get the holdouts vaccinated, I'm all for 
If they need to be told that we tried to trick them into not getting vaccinated, first by begging them to get vaccinated and then by enacting vaccine mandates to compel them to get vaccinated, if they need to be told that all the begging and mandating was a trick and that the only way to really own the libs now is to get vaccinated to spite us, I'm all for it. Okay, sure, yes, please, whatever it takes. But let's not lose sight of what's really going on here. The lunatic magarub cranker-uppers on the right, the people who work at the Fox Newses and the Breitbarts, are doing the math, finally. In Nolte's case, he's literally doing the math in his piece. He looks at how tight elections are, how few votes actually decide statewide and national elections, and then looks at the thousands of people dying every day, almost all of them, 99% of them unvaccinated, and that almost all unvaccinated Americans at this point are Trump supporters. And he comes to the realization that this can't go on forever. And if it does, Texas and Florida and Idaho and Missouri are going to be bluer than the lips of unvaccinated red staters in hospitals hooked up to ventilators. What Nolte and the right are suddenly trying to do here is reverse engineer their way out of the trap they set for themselves. Their misinformation and their conspiracy theories are killing their own voters. So now, an own-the-libs case for getting vaccinated, a new galaxy brain conspiracy theory to replace the conspiracy theory that was getting them killed. These lying liars lied their way into this mess, and now these lying liars are trying to lie their way out of it. Sincerely, I wish them luck. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro, lots of your Q, tons of my A, and on the micro and the magnum, Lee Cowart, author of Hurt So Good, The Science and Pleasure of Pain on Purpose, is here to talk about what hot peppers, ballet slippers, and BDSMers all have in common. And speaking of new books, my new book comes out this week, Savage Love from A to Z, a collaboration with longtime Savage Love illustrator Joe Newton. Get one wherever books are sold or get two. All right. Let's get to it. Hey, Dan, Magnum subscriber in my late 20s, queer female here with a sex success story. I've identified as bi for quite some time now, but about this time last year, I came out as a lesbian. Not an ideal time, especially being in the middle of quarantine, and even more difficult because I had to find my way out of a long-term straight relationship. Throughout the last year, I've been on a lot of dating apps with not a lot of luck. I think due to my lack of experience with women, which seemed to be a turnoff for a lot of them, and that was really discouraging. I'm a very sexual person, so being celibate for about the last year and a half or so has been super rough. Um, But after following some of your advice and being really transparent in my dating profiles, I finally found someone who saw past my inexperience, and I'm happy to say I just had sex with her, and it felt so fucking good. It was amazing, Dan. We started making out, things started slowly escalating, and eventually we were both naked and rolling around with our hands, exploring every inch of each other. Because it was my first time having sex with a woman, I told her to sit on my face so she could control it a little more, so I could kind of figure out where to navigate my tongue. And then I fucked her. It was awesome. She was so wet, and feeling her body contract as I was inside of her was amazing. 
holy hell, I was in heaven, Dan. So big thank you to you and Nancy and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth for helping this late bloomer get laid. Thank you so much for calling and sharing your success story and congratulations. And I'm glad the transparency advice that you took worked for you and you found the right person who wasn't turned off by your inexperience. To anyone out there who's inexperienced and worried that that might be a turnoff, a person who's turned off by your inexperience isn't a person who's going to be patient or kind or indulgent or understanding and you don't want to go to bed with them anyway. So don't hide it. Put it out there like the caller did. Risk making yourself vulnerable. All right. Loved that success story. If you have a good one that you want to share, give us a call. Share your sex success story and we may open next week's Lovecast with yours. Hey, Dan. 35-year-old cis polyam white dude from Texas. And my question is, do you think it's acceptable for me to date a white woman with dreadlocks? She is aware that many people consider it to be cultural appropriation, but obviously doesn't care. Should it be disqualifying? My partner certainly thinks so. And I know that my friends will judge me for it. I'm curious what you and your listeners think. I don't want to be the reply guy on Twitter going off about how the ancient Greeks and Indians and Aztecs and people in the Middle East and early Christians wore dreadlocks and therefore blah, blah, blah. I am, however, not down with hair cops and telling people what they can and can't wear or can and can't do or how they can or cannot style their hair. But I have to recognize that as a white person, I don't have if I may, skin in this game. I mean, I'm Irish. I've always been super annoyed by St. Patrick's Day parades, but it doesn't compare, right? In the history of oppression of the Irish in America, brief and no comparison. My issue with white people in dreadlocks, and maybe this is what your other partner and your friends are picking up on, is right now at this moment, to be a white person, to be a white woman, with dreadlocks, you're saying really one of two things. I'm either clueless or I'm a troll. I'm either dense about how other people might perceive this and the offense it might cause, or I'm trying to cause that offense. I'm trolling. With dreadlocks at this moment, it, there doesn't seem to be a middle ground between clueless and trolling. And therefore, while I would never tell anybody with dreadlocks they couldn't wear dreadlocks, when I see a white person with dreadlocks, that's where my head goes. Like, wow, kind of clueless, not reading the room or the planet or a troll. And I don't know about you, but I don't like to spend a lot of time with clueless people, people with poor judgment, I sometimes call them on the show. And I don't like to spend any time with trolls. So you're going to have to make your own best judgment here. Is this woman that you're interested in, this white woman with the dreadlocks, is she clueless or is she a troll? Maybe if you start dating her and she has conversations with your primary partner and with some other people, she might think better of it. Maybe you could call her in instead of calling her out like they sometimes say on social media. And she will see the error of her hairdresser's ways. Or maybe not. Or maybe she occupies that middle ground, that contested middle ground, that almost impossible to see middle ground, where she is neither clueless nor a troll. And this is not cultural appropriation on her part, or not thoughtless cultural appropriation, but some sort of careful, thought out, justified 
cultural appreciation on her part. Or maybe it's just a fucking hairstyle that she likes and she thinks looks good on her. But if she hasn't thought about it at this moment, she needs to think about it. Maybe getting involved with all y'all who clearly have thought about it or have opinions about it might cause her to give it a little bit more thought. Hey, Dan. I am a 40-year-old gay man in San Francisco, and I have recently ended up in a beautiful, loving relationship, an intergenerational relationship with this beautiful guy uh, that's 27. He is super kinky, super into the kink scene here in San Francisco. He loves being denigrated, uh, sort of used, treated like shit, like that. And I can't. I just love him so much. It feels like hard for me to do that. So um, we consider ourselves a polyamorous couple, but we act like an open couple. Like I let him go get his kink fix and he loves it. And he comes back to me and we cuddle and it's all good. But over time, we're falling more and more in love. Like this feeling is getting more intense. Like it's the real deal. And I want to start to give him more of what he needs. And I wonder if you have any uh, advice for me about how to shore up the, the guts to denigrate him in the way that he needs and wants so that we can develop that connection. You know, when you don't stand in the way of your partner getting what they need, something they need, not everything they need elsewhere, you are meeting their needs. You're allowing them to have what they need. And therefore, I think you are giving your partner what he needs. And there are a lot of kinky people out there who are into you know humiliation, degradations, and pain who don't want those things from their primary partner. They want different things, different kinds of sex, different kinds of lovemaking from their primary partner. And they can't tap into their primary partner in that same way that they can tap into a casual sex partner or a brand new sex partner where they can really get into that role as you know the degraded cocksucking sub. And if that's the case for your partner, that's fine. And if it's the case that because you have such strong feelings for him, because you love him, that you're not able to go there, you're not able to degrade him in the way that he enjoys being degraded and might enjoy being degraded by you if this is something he wants from you, that's fine too. You don't necessarily have to go there. The thing you don't want to do is tell your partner, you know, we're in love and we're shutting this relationship down and because I'm insecure that I can't meet this need of yours, you're not allowed to get it met elsewhere and you have to go without. And you're not attempting to impose that on him. So uh, I think you need to relax and I think you need to be okay with where you're at right now with your partner. Maybe you'll grow into this, not as you begin to feel less for him, not you know as a marker of you falling out of love for him or being less into him. Maybe you'll grow into this and you'll catch a groove where there's some angle you can work where you're degrading him. Maybe not in the exact same way or with the exact same terminology that a casual sex partner or a new sex partner might be able to do it with him. But you'll find your slice of his of this part of his erotic imagination. Or you won't. It could also be the case that you just might want to tag along. That someone else treating him like this in front of the man who loves him might give it that layer and then the place that you can explore is dirty talk about that, dirty talk around that, before and after that. Because imagine how degrading it would be for him to be treated that way by someone in front of you and that may be your way in. But right now, enjoy where you're at and don't rush it. It's wonderful when people have a strong sexual connection but the longer you're together – 
you want your sexual connection, you want your sexual dynamic to grow and change and evolve. And that is a process that I think requires some intentionality. It has to have some thought, some commitment, but it also has to be allowed once there's some thoughtfulness about it and some intentionality or openness to it, conscious openness to that kind of evolution of the dynamics. At that point, you have to kind of let it happen organically. You make sure that all the settings are correct, all the dials are set so that there is uh, this opportunity for growth and this allowance for it and for shifting emotional and sexual dynamics and types of play. And then just sit back and, and be confident that since you've invited it, you've opened the door to it, that when it should come, if it should come, it'll come. And if it never comes, so long as you two are still connected, still in love, uh, that the, the relationship is still sexual, if that's what you both want, your primary loving committed relationship to be, it still is, it can be fine. And, and there can be nothing wrong with your relationship. If this part of your boyfriend's you know, erotic imagination, your boyfriend's needs, is a place you, you never visit together, is a need that you can't meet, but you're not preventing him from getting that need met elsewhere and you are also meeting other equally as important if not more important needs of his don't devalue those hi dan i am a 30 year old female from the midwest i'm married happily strongly i found a very rare connection with my husband in college and it's just gotten stronger ever since after listening to your show for a few years, I decided I wanted to explore a little bit of monogamish relationship style. Opened up to my husband. He slightly skeptical, mostly into it at first. And I decided to, or we decided rather, to explore that. Ultimately, it ended up being only me exploring because I think he's done his dating days um, and had his slutty phase, uh, something that, that I wasn't able to really get um, until I kind of came into my confidence in the past few years. As much as he tells me he's into it for the past year, every time I tell him about some sort of extramarital situation, even if it's just strictly making out like I haven't been going out and about or anything I mean it's really like I made out with two guys three guys maybe and I had sex with one guy he was really into it very mixed bag of emotions so drew a lot of sadness a little jealousy and really at a loss for words which is rare for him so I guess my question is is there any middle ground for monogamous relationships for you between DADT and being completely open and honest. I asked that to and build on that because it seems as though he wants to know a little bit, but not all of it. It seems like the details are something that get him to be a little more self-conscious and sad and not see the positive side of our situation. If he wants you to tell him, what you're doing with other people. If he wants you to answer his questions, you should tell him. You should answer his questions. You need to pay close attention to his reactions, as does he. And that's something that you're both going to need to discuss. 
it could be that he is just getting accustomed to this, to you engaging with other people sexually, even if so far it's just been making out, swapping a little spit. And there may be some sadness there for him and some grief. You've changed the terms of your relationship. You have asked him for permission to sleep with other people and he agreed to it. And maybe he agreed to it reluctantly and, you know, you've renegotiated the terms of the commitment that you've made. It's no longer a strictly monogamous commitment. If monogamy was something that he valued but something he was willing to let go for you so you could stay in this relationship with him and be happy, he's allowed to have a sad about that. He's allowed to have a process around grieving the relationship as it was as you transition to the relationship it's going to become. And it's sometimes the case that when one person – somewhat reluctantly agrees to open the relationship. They want to hear about what their other partner is doing and they have a sad. And then, you know, they hear about those things, maybe the bare outlines or maybe they want every detail and they become less sad over time because they see you coming back and assumptions they may have made or fears or insecurities they may have about you engaging with other people sexually don't come to pass. And maybe your sexual connection grows stronger because you're more content, more excited in the relationship and there is then some perceived benefit to him sexually or to you know that he perceives in the relationship between you two. And then he'll be less sad over time. And that's why you have to pay attention to how he reacts. If, however, he gets more and more sad or angrier and angrier – well, then you need to examine his motives in opening up the relationship. And so does he. It is sometimes the case that a person will reluctantly agree to some degree of openness and then demonstrate that this was reluctant and this is not what they wanted by punishing their partner, by raising the opportunity cost, by having dramatic sads or being very angry, sometimes violent. And in a way, it's not always conscious, but in a way it can be a manipulative attempt to say no or to reject openness while allowing for it. Like I'm not saying you can't sleep with other people, but each time you sleep with somebody else, I'm going to really lay in. I'm going to make you regret it. If that's the dynamic that comes to play here, if that's where this is tracking, where this is going, then an open relationship with your husband isn't going to work. That's what he's telling you. It'd be better if he just said that. And you guys ended the marriage rather than getting to a place where it's high conflict, high stress, angry, awful marriage. And it would have been better if that was the case, if he just ended it. The problem is sometimes people don't realize how they actually feel until they're in it. You know, as an abstraction, as a hypothetical, can I let my wife sleep with somebody else? Yes, and now I've agreed to it, and now she has, and oh my God, I feel terrible, and I can't hide it, but this is what I agreed to. Uh, now what do I do? I have to withdraw that permission or keep going down this path, opening up a relationship. People are going to learn things about the relationship and about themselves, not just as a couple, but as individuals. And then you're going to have to reassess and renegotiate. And once you reassess and renegotiate, whether it's working or not, that might mean closing the relationship up again to save it if your marriage is your priority. Or it could mean ending it 
if it's not working for you and you'd rather be single than monogamous, it's scary stuff. But no relationship, open or closed, survives if the two people in it can't communicate with each other. And opening a relationship, it gives you a lot to communicate about. You won't be bored. If anything else, you will not be bored as you navigate this stage of your marriage. Only time will tell if it's the end stage. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I'm a straight guy in his early 30s dating the most awesome woman ever. We've been together for about 14 months and we get along super well. The sex is incredible. I have literally zero complaints. I work for the government and I recently got the opportunity to do a two-year rotation in Russia. Neither of us wants to be in a long-distance relationship and we both think it'd be a pretty cool adventure as long as we could go together. The problem though is that it's about impossible for her to get there on a tourist visa, so we'd basically need to get married in like the next three weeks so she could also be on a diplomatic visa. She'd also have to quit her job, but we could live off of my salary, especially given that housing is paid for. She's cool with that part of the plan and is thinking of doing an online master's degree while we're in Russia, thus leaving her even more employable when we get back. I guess our question is, what else do we need to be thinking about? We've talked about kids and neither of us wants them. We've shown each other our finances and we're both comfortable with it. And we've talked to a lawyer about getting a prenup and she assured us that it would be pretty easy and basically the same as if we're still dating. We've both dated around enough to know that this relationship is really special, but we've also dated around enough to see relationships fail after a year. So we're a little cautious. So what do you think? Is it crazy for us to get married and move to Russia? Or should we go for it and say we've covered our bases and we'll deal with the fallout if we're wrong about something? We've talked with our friends and family at length, and honestly, they're more supportive than I would have guessed they'd be. So what do you think? You want to do it. She wants to do it. Your friends, your family, all supportive of you guys doing this. And so you want to know if I think you should, I'm the deciding, I'm the, uh, it's up to me now. Like you just need the gay dude with the sex podcast to weigh in. Yeah, I think you should do it. I think you should get married. I think you should sign a prenup. I think you should be very clear with one another that you're only, and it sounds like you have been clear with one another. You're just getting married now for logistical reasons. So you can continue to date each other. And then if you decide to, really very seriously get married in the future, well, then you can have a big-ass wedding. And if you want that big-ass wedding to be a consequential legal-ass wedding, well, get divorced before you have that big-ass wedding, although that would be an expense and an annoyance. Yeah, go. Sounds like an amazing opportunity for her. Sounds like an amazing adventure for you guys as a couple. And if it doesn't work out, so long as the prenups are ironclad, you guys break up in six months, well, then she can come home. You can get a divorce. And hopefully, even if you guys do break up, it'll be like adults breaking up. You can both look at the relationship and feel good about it. A successful STR, as I call it. So yeah, go. Of course, go. You should absolutely, positively do this. I am in complete agreement with you, her, your friends, and your family. Hey, Dan, I'm a student in a medical program, and I'm doing some clinical education rotations currently. So there's a patient, this person is born a female and now identifies as male. And 
with another student in the in the clinic with me, and I was listening to her discuss this patient coming in, and the student referred to this person as her, and I said, oh, hey, just so you know, they identify as a him or he, and uh, that student's instructor said, well, I just call them they because they, just in case they'll change their mind, and I and I didn't know how to react. Well, they might seem like a neutral thing, maybe. I don't know. It sounded like you don't change your mind. Like it's, I don't know. I didn't react to it honestly because I'm I have to be on my best behavior in this situation and not get flared up about things. So maybe some advice on how to react to something like that in a professional setting would be great. I don't want to make you feel bad, and your heart's obviously in the right place, hence the call, the question. But you should have said something in the moment, and I don't understand why you didn't say something in the moment. That was an assholey thing for that person to say, and you didn't have to flip the table over or kick a hole in the wall to push back and just say, I'm sorry, that's really disrespectful, and people get to choose their own pronouns, and we have to be respectful of our patient's gender identity. It's a huge issue. Trans people, non-binary people not seeking medical care that they need for fear of exactly this kind of treatment. It's a barrier to treatment for a lot of trans and non-binary folks. And if the doctors and med students in the room who aren't assholes don't speak up when the doctors or med students in the room who are assholes throw something like this out – that's just going to make that barrier to seeking treatment for trans people even higher. So the good news is it's not too late. It's not too late to go back to this person and say, I'm really uncomfortable with that thing that you said. Perhaps this is new for you, trans people, trans men. You got to get used to it. And as doctors, what is that? The Hippocratic Oath, first, do no harm. You may not see it, but this does harm. What you were doing in that room, in part because it's probably not going to stay in that room. Other people are going to feel empowered by your comment not to speak rudely or dismissively of a trans person who isn't in the room, but to a trans person who they might be in a room with. So I really felt like I had to say something. All you got to do, go do it. You will feel so much better after Having done that, someone who says something like that, I'm just going to call them them in case they change their mind. Sometimes that person is not just asking for it, but they need it and they want it. They want some pushback. They're testing the limits of, of what is acceptable or what is expected of them. And in a way, it can be negative attention seeking. I'm going to say this shitty thing to see if this shitty thing I'm saying is still a thing I'm allowed to say. And it just takes one person to stand up and say, don't say that shitty thing for them to stop saying that shitty thing forever. Go be that person. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight, cis, upper twenties female from the Midwest. And recently my partner told me that he'd only like to receive prostate massages at his house because my toilet paper is too rough. I buy sustainable toilet paper made with bamboo along with many other products in my apartment and I was wondering what your opinion was on this 
should I stop buying sustainable toilet paper and accommodate him and buy some Charmin Ultra? Or should I just accept that we'll only do that at his house? The toilet paper doesn't personally bother me, but yeah, just curious what your thoughts were on accommodation there. Republicans in Arizona have been examining ballots in their bullshit audit of the 2020 election results, hoping to find bamboo fibers when all along they were in your toilet paper, in your apartment. That's where they needed to go look. Uh, is this a problem that you two fully grown-ass adults having sex can't solve on your own? I mean, happy to take your call, happy for you to bring your problems to me, but how hard would it be to lay in one or two rolls of his preferred brand of toilet paper in your apartment for him to use? You can use a sustainable bamboo fiber ass sandpaper, and he can use his soft, squishy, imperiling the planet Charmin, and you can keep them separate or keep one roll to, of each on the back of the, the toilet tank. Seems to me that you can massage his prostate wherever you go, wherever you guys are, including your apartment, so long as he has access to his preferred brand of toilet paper so that his hiney is always feeling it. Hi, Dan. I am a heteroflexible female from San Francisco, California, and I'm new to anal. My boyfriend loves it. Um, something that I'm very new to, but I'm growing accustomed to. And after listening to your show, I realized that apparently we're supposed to be cleaning out. And although I'm open to this, I really haven't found any information on the art of cleaning out and how to do that. So if you can enlighten me on the process of cleaning out and what that entails, it would be extremely helpful. So I can start doing it and start enjoying anal even more. If you've been listening to me talk on the show about anal douching over the years, you've heard me say that it is optional. If you have a good and balanced diet, you get plenty of fiber, you get plenty of uh, liquids, you're hydrated, you're not just eating cheeseburgers and fries and drinking Diet Cokes and coffee, and your bowel movements are regular and complete – you should be good to go. You've been experimenting with anal. You've been having anal sex. I have to assume that if there were a bunch of poopy disasters, you would have mentioned that, that that would have been what motivated you to call about how to clean out was that you were having not great experiences because you weren't cleaned out. Well, if you've had a solid and complete bowel movement and your stools aren't loose, you're cleaned out. Your ass, you know, is not a chocolate frozen yogurt dispenser in the back of a tasty freeze in a small town in Texas during a brownout. It isn't always sort of dripping. If you have a good and balanced diet and you're having regular bowel movements, you're not having any other gut troubles at the moment. So if you've been generally good to go and you know when it feels like you're empty and good to go and you haven't had any problems, you can continue to do what you've been doing without having to clean out. If you would like to clean out because you've had a poopy disaster, if you have a poopy disaster in the future, which happens when you fuck ass, even sometimes when a person does clean out, you know, if you don't want to ever encounter poop, if that's going to destroy anal for you or melt your dick if you're the dick haver in that exchange or melt your strap on if you're the strap on haver in that exchange, maybe anal isn't for you if you're that sensitive. You know, when it happens, you get up, you take a shower and then you do something else. But if you want the added security of not having to worry about whether you're going to have a poopy disaster or not, or you've had one and you don't want to have one again. There's tons of information online about cleaning out. The SF AIDS Foundation has a great 
rundown called Anal Douching and Safety Tips that applies uh, for all asshole havers, which is all of us, not just for gay or bi men. You get a little douche bulb, you put a little tap water in it, you squeeze it up your butt, and then you expel it on the toilet and you repeat, rinse and repeat until the water is coming out clear. If it's taking more than four, five, six, you know, rinse and repeats and it's still not coming out clear, well, maybe that's not a good anal day for you. Maybe you're not going to get to clear. You're not going to get the go-ahead from your butt that, that tells you that you can go for it. Uh, but once it's clear, you're empty. You're good to go. It's actually not that hard. And in reality, it's not necessary necessarily. And it's certainly not compulsory. Hi, Dan. I'm in my mid-30s. My husband's in his late 30s. We have a child who is under the age of one. And lately, I feel like we've both been really, really unhappy. There's a lot of reasons that go into that. There's a lot that has been going on behind the scenes. And the reality is, is, I don't think that this is new this year. I think it's just become much more apparent. Um, there have been some financial issues. I was the primary breadwinner for the bulk of our marriage, which is four years now. I think that that stress of the financial situation has really impacted my relationship with my husband. I think that his family is very toxic and they have really put more of an imprint on him than he'd like to admit. He had basically no relationship with his father, despite the fact that his father and mother were still married and living together, although they weren't even a companion at marriage. They were basically two strangers who lived in a house together. And I just don't know how to have the conversation with him where I say, I think that we're both not happy and that we need to examine whether or not this is a relationship that should end successfully and so that we can co-parent so we don't hate each other. And, and I don't know if this is a divorce in the making or whatever, but I don't know how to examine it myself and how to have that conversation with him. When people ask this question, how do I have this conversation? How do I tell someone something that they don't want to hear? And it's almost always women people who ask this question in this way, what they want me to give them is some language that gets you instantly from married to divorced and it being amicable without any shouting, any anger, any hurt feelings. And that's not possible. You're going to have to tell your husband something that he almost certainly does not want to hear. And that's you're leaving him and that's a decision that you've made and you don't need his permission or his consent to end this marriage if that's what you've decided to do. And it sounds like you have really good reasons to end this marriage. So make a plan. You don't say that you're afraid of your husband. You don't say that you worry for your safety or the safety of your child in rolling this out. You just – don't know how to say this. You don't know how to, to put it in words. And what I think that you mean and what I often sense that women mean when they put that question to me in that way is how do I put this into words where it sounds like it's his idea in the first place or he's not mad at me or I'm not you know saying no to a man or hurting a man's feeling. And you just got to do it. You just got to 
tell him. And you've got to steel yourself. You've got to gird your loins for what is likely to be a shit show. It's never easy ending or exiting a relationship. It's certainly degrees of magnitude more difficult to end a marriage. But you're going to have to end it. It sounds like you've already made the decision to end it. You just have to tell him. You just have to force the words out of your mouth. You have to say the things that once said can't be unsaid. And you need to go into that conversation. If indeed your mind is made up, not regarding it as a conversation, as a back and forth, you're not trying to achieve consensus here. You're telling him something that is going to happen because you have a right to exit this marriage. He can't compel you to stay. You know, often, and I only hear this from women, or people who are socialized, but often what women want is to have a discussion and come to an agreement and feel like they can't leave if they can't get to that agreement. You don't need to get to an agreement about a divorce if that's what you've decided to do. It sounds like that's what you've decided to do. So you don't fear for your safety. You don't fear your kid's safety. Still make a plan, have a place to go, have some friends lined up that you can unload on afterwards if it's really ugly so that you're safe, so that you have some people to to, to turn to if indeed he has a, an angry reaction that's so intense you can't be around him for a while or God forbid, and I hope not, and Jesus Christ, a violent reaction to this news. The news that his marriage is ending and the news that you would like in the future to have an amicable relationship with your ex-husband and the co-parent to your child. You will get there. You will get, hopefully, to that amicable relationship that you would like to have with your ex-husband. You're not going to get there in the first 30 seconds after you tell him you're divorcing him. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Lee Cowart, a researcher and journalist whose work has appeared in The Washington Post, New York Magazine, BuzzFeed Vice, and other outlets. Before becoming a journalist, Cowart was immersed in academia, doing research on subjects like sexual dimorphism in leaf-nosed bats. Their new book, (laughs) Hurts So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose, has just been published. Hey, Lee, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. So much. Thank you so much. Uh, I finished the book last night and I love it. So I'm a little bit starstruck always when I have to speak to an author right after finishing and loving their book. It's easier when I finish and don't love the book. So forgive me (laughs) if I gush. Uh, You open the book with a pretty intense and pretty revealing BDSM scene, your own. Mm -hmm. And then you broaden out because as you say in the book, when you look around, you find masochism everywhere. Where? When you say when you say masochism's everywhere, where do you mean besides a dungeon or a BDSM scene? Where is masochism? Oh my gosh! In all the places that humans have these deliberate, consensual, aversive experiences. So, hot pepper eating, polar plunges, ultra marathons, ballet, circus performers, nail biters—like the list goes on and on. And it's just—it's a pattern that once you start to see it, you realize that, like, oh. This isn't, this goes on, this has been going on forever throughout history. It's not a modern thing. We've been doing this in our religions, in our rituals for fun, just because we're bored. Like, it's such a common and human thing to do. And yet, 
at least when it comes to masochism and sex, everyone pretends to be confused by masochists, by sexual masochists. How could you enjoy that? Is that just sex negativity? Pain on purpose is fine if you're a mixed martial arts fighter or a ballet dancer, but add a Hitachi magic wand and a shattering orgasm or 12 and suddenly no one can understand it or they pretend not to understand it? Yes, yes. So, I mean, sexual masochism is really common. In the Kinsey report, they found that like half of people like to bite or be bitten during sex, half. And I think part of this kind of pearl clutching around the word masochism comes from the fact that like the word comes from this one dude, right? Leopold Sexer Massach, and he wrote Venus and Furs, and he was a like very hardcore pain slut. Right. <laughs> and his name, Massock's name, was turned into the word for masochism. So, like, pain on purpose is connected to this, like, one dude's boner. And <laughs> people are weird about that. So, like, it's the only word that we really throw around for this in English. And it is really connected to, like, Sax or Massock and Venus and Furs and this, like, man who wanted to be whipped and beaten and denigrated. And it became such a specific sexual paraphilia that it really gave us this like myopic view of what it means to engage with pain on purpose. And since Americans are so squeamish about sex and so like nervous about it, it really kind of keeps us from being curious about all the other ways that pain shows up for us in our lives. And we don't usually describe those other ways as masochism or masochistic uh, pleasures or pursuits, even though that's what they are. Because as you yeah. say, masochism is associated with this one dude's very specific and sexual boner around masochism. <laughs> uh, so somebody who, you know, really enjoys and on some level has the same kind of endorphin rush experience that a sexual masochist might have from eating hot peppers or running mm -hmm. an ultra marathon will shy away from the mm -hmm. term masochist because of its sexual association. Truly. Yeah. And it's interesting because masochism does, like masochist does get used colloquially, right? Like someone who works too much, or like a grad student who's in the lab all the time. We say they're masochists, but like they're still, yeah, the connection to sex means we're a little bit squeamish about really busting the doors open on what that word really encompasses. Your book is full of so many fascinating details, uh, including that it might not have been called masochism except for a very specific family situation. Uh, that yes. soccer Masak uh, found himself. Can you, can you share that detail? I, I just love that. That's what's one of the things that's so terrific about your book is all the different places it goes. But share that detail about how it could have been called something else. Right. Well, so Masak's mom was like really powerful and, and like just like a strong woman. And his dad, his dad's last name um, was Saxer. And Masak's mom was the last of her line. And she basically like bullied her husband into a hyphenated name. In the 1830s. In the 1830s. Yes. And he was like a cop. Like he was like a powerful mustachio dude. And she bullied him into taking her name too. And that's why he was born Leopold Saxer Massach. And that's how we got masochism from his mama, which is funny because he had serious mommy issues throughout his life. You write about the importance of ritual when it comes to uh, this phrase that you use over and over again, um, pain on purpose. Mm -hmm. But there's a build. Stubbing your toe isn't a choice, but putting point shoes. You talk about having trained as a ballet dancer and danced ballet for many, many years. Uh, and that mm -hmm. involves a lot of 
punishing physical pain that, that, that has to be endured. So while stubbing your toe, a toe isn't a choice, putting point shoes on is. Uh, and that mm-hmm. seems to make a difference. And also the ritual and the formalities built in around those moments when we choose pain on purpose, you know, a hot pepper eating contest, not just you stumble over a hot pepper and ingest it. Uh, mm-hmm. And that extends also to, you know, pain on purpose in sexual context. You know, getting up on a bondage board and letting somebody strap you down, that is a choice that you've made. Yes. How mm-hmm. does choice make our perceptions or experiences of pain different? So the really neat thing about pain is that it is always 100% subjective. Like there is no way for a scientist to like scan your brain and know like definitively exactly how much pain you're expecting. The brain creates the sensation of pain fresh every time. And it's based on all of these other factors. It's not like a one-to-one stimulus to response ratio. Your brain takes into account context, emotional state, expectation, and arousal, like where you are, what you're doing, and how you think it's going to go for you. So what makes pain so interesting is that when we consent to an experience that would normally be aversive, we are creating this whole new context around what we think we're going to get out of it, what we think it might feel like. And that influences how we actually perceive the pain, how our brain makes the pain. So while if I stub my toe, I'm still just as much of a crybaby as any stranger walking down the street. When I put on my point shoes or when I did, I knew what I was getting into. I had a framework for it. I had an expectation of value and an expectation of reward that I was going to get something out of doing that. And that totally reframed the painful experience and turns it into something that I'm in control of, which is very powerful and very fun to play with. Um, you know, one of those dumb things that people say to masochists is like to the masochist who stubbed his toe, oh, you must have enjoyed that, right? Because you like pain. Right. Uh, and, you know, you don't opt in to stubbing your toe. That's not a choice you made. That's an accident. You write in the book that if one cannot opt out of suffering, then it is not masochism. What is it? Absolutely. What is it when you can't opt out? It's just suffering at that point. And suffering is not the same as masochism. Right. Just being in pain is not necessarily engaging in a masochistic act. Like masochism only exists because of the consent that prefaces it. Like if I ask my partner to hit me and I like that, that's fine. But if someone else just hit me, I would hate that. I would hate it. It would be an assault. And so like it's so important. It's so important to know that the consent without consent there is no masochism without saying that, yes, I want to experience this pain and I'm in control of stopping it. Without that, there can be no playful pain on purpose. It's something else. The willful obtuseness of, uh, of so many folks when it comes to this can be very aggravating because the same person yeah. <laughs> definitely understands the difference between a lover whose touch you welcome grabbing your ass, uh, not mm-hmm. being assault. And somebody on the bus that you don't know from Adam grabbing your ass and that being assault will not Mm -hmm. be able to get the distinction between pain you've welcomed or asked for and pain that somebody else inflicts on you without 
you choosing it or, or with you know or again going back to that example stubbing your toe without expecting to and yet people right. who understand the distinction what makes welcome sexual touch not assault and unwelcome touch assault can't understand the difference mm-hmm. between you know pain uh, that you've asked for that you've anticipated that you've constructed a ritual around uh, accepting and you know falling down breaking your leg Mm-hmm. Do you find as a masochist that inability of so many people aggravating? I certainly do. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, it's wild. And it's like, there's almost like a willful wall there. And I try to get around it by explaining that pleasure works the same way. Like, if I want to eat an ice cream cone, and I go out and I get an ice cream cone, and like, I enjoy the experience of it, I've consented to all of that. But if someone just like, started like cramming ice cream down my throat without me asking for it. Well, it would be a very different experience. And, and sometimes, sometimes that can kind of crack the shell around seeing how consent is, is changing the like rules of engagement. Like if you're opting into something, then you have an expectation of enjoyment and value. And if you're not, then you're not going to get that. And that, is the same for pleasurable touch, for ice cream, for all these nice things as it is for these more like kind of high sensation experiences that some of us love so much. One of the things I loved about the book was the chapter about the hot pepper, the culture around hot peppers, (laughs) hot pepper eating contests. And you spend time with the guy who grew or developed the hottest hot pepper in the world. Uh, Yeah. And you're not a, a fundamentalist conservative Christian. He is. And yet mm-hmm. you have masochism in common. Yes. Meeting Ed Curry was great. He, uh, he is the one who developed the Carolina Reaper pepper, which is the hottest pepper in the world. And his, he's a former addict and he uses capsaicin and these hot peppers to kind of give him the endorphin rush that he misses. And it's also a big part of, of his religion. And it's very important to him in that way. And he, he was so wonderful to talk to because he said things to me like, you know, he's like, I don't understand people who hang from hooks like human suspension Mm But he said that he was so sure that they were getting like kind of the same thing out of those hooks that he was getting out of his peppers. And, you know, what I liked about Ed was he has this curiosity around like the playground of the human experience and like the playground of the body, because when you're in pain, your brain releases like a biochemical slurry of feel good chemicals. And it does that regardless of uh, your religion, regardless of uh, whether you want the extra endorphins or not, like our bodies have all of these ways to respond to stimuli and take care of us. And it was really neat to, to get to talk to someone who has a very different experience of pain than I do, and yet still really intuitively understood that what we're doing is... Uh, is engaging with our bodies deliberately to feel better. So if the body releases a slurry of, you know, feel good uh, chemicals, endorphins when you're in pain, Mm -hmm. why is pain painful? And why aren't we all seeking it all the time to tap into those feel good chemicals? Right. Why is pain painful? 
I like to play a game where I think about what pain could have been. If we think about pain as your brain trying to keep you safe and trying to send alarm bells when it needs to, then it's like the kind of unspeakable nature of pain. Like, how do you really describe that sensation other than saying like, ow, it is aversive because it's part of our like safety programming. And yet when we bump up against these danger signals, when we know that we are actually safe, we can tap into the playground aspect of our entire like biochemical pain suffering system. You write masochism is about choosing pain on purpose for a reason. And often in my experience, that reason is to feel bad, to feel better. Can you unpack that mm-hmm. to feel bad, to feel better? Not just about endorphins, is it? No, it's not. It's not. You know, for me personally, there is something about pain that brings me like unequivocally into the present moment. Like it's, it's like transcendence. When I am in a scene, when I'm experiencing pain, there aren't other thoughts in my head. It's just me and my body and that sensation. And like, that feels special. Like I'm not, I'm not religious, but like, that's kind of as close as I get this moment of stillness. And then afterwards when it's over and I've endured and I'm triumphant and I'm getting the endorphins and I'm getting the endocannabinoids. Ah, it feels nice. It's more than just the brain goo. It's like the whole experience of testing my own limits and affirming my resilience and seeing just what my body can do. Do you think that masochism, uh, or BDSM more broadly, is a sexual orientation? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I think that for some people, it is a non-negotiable aspect of their sexuality. And for others, it's more of something that they dabble in here and there for fun. But I don't know if there's like a hard answer around that. You know, I've been thinking about that a lot. Is it nature? Is it nurture? Is it because I was a ballerina? You know, is it because of how my brain developed when I was a kid? Or am I just like any other human figuring shit out as I go? I want to ask my last question, and and thank you so much for this conversation. Um, Who do you think is more stigmatized, masochists or sadists? You know, people pretend to be obtuse about masochism. People are incapable of recognizing Uh, the ways in which masochism may express itself in their own lives if it's not specifically sexual. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, you know, to be the masochist is to sort of be the star of the scene, I think, uh, if it's sexual. Mm -hmm. And even though people pretend not to get it, I think on some level people do. They just pretend not to. But to be the sadist, Mm -hmm. if you're the sadist, you're the hot pepper. In a way, you're not human, in that mm-hmm. that moment. And I just wonder who's more stigmatized, in, in your opinion, after having written this book, masochists or sadists? Who are people more uncomfortable with? I think given the way Amer- American culture is structured, I think that people feel more comfortable with the concept of sadism because it's more closely aligned to ideals of dominance and power. Hmm. And so it's more immediately understandable 
uh, when you think about like movies with violent heroes and this kind of like hoorah military culture and the like, you know, it, it's also, it comes up with like, you know, how people feel about penetration and dominance. And I think sadism kind of feels more like, you know, it's like the misunderstanding that the sadist runs the scene. Like, obviously that's not true. The sadist is not in control. The masochist is because they are the ones dictating what they want and when they want the scene to stop. But if you don't understand that that is the dynamic, that is the actual dynamic of this in practice, then the misunderstanding that the sadist holds the power, I think, lends itself to people thinking that sadism is more acceptable because it's not vulnerable. You know, I recently got a letter uh, at Savage Love from uh, a young gay man who was interested, I think, in being spanked and was having a hard time getting that from a boyfriend that was vanilla, but was too afraid to meet up with guys who wanted to spank him because Mm. he was afraid that if they liked it too much or liked it at all or deriving some pleasure from it themselves independently of his pleasure that, that he was deriving as a masochist, that he would be in danger. So while I agree that you know, in BDSM scenes with safe words uh, and trusted partners, really it is the bottom that's, that's in charge and, and shaping it. Mm-hmm. There are sadists out there who are able to work within those uh, confines, uh, within those limits, who are still deriving their own sadistic pleasures from those exchanges. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. in a sexual context, people are really uncomfortable with those people. Like it's okay to want to be spanked. It's not okay to really want to spank somebody. Right. Because what what that brings up is like, can I trust this person to respect me and my boundaries? And, you know, like entrusting your body to a stranger feels scary. And especially if you're going to kind of dabble in uh, pain on purpose in that way. I think that there's so much trust and communication that comes into play when uh, people explore these things that having a fear that someone like a sadist will like it, but not in the way that you want them to is something that you can kind of look for when you're screening. Lee Coart, their new book, Hurts So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose, just been published. I just finished it last night. It is tremendous. And I recommend that everyone out there with a passing interest in masochism, which is really everyone Uh, Get this book and give it a read. Thank you so much, Lee. Thank you so much, Dan. Hi, Dan. You often talk about how you read a lot of erotica and the irony since you organize Hump, but you've never mentioned any particular books or authors. I'm very curious to try some erotic fiction. Can you make any recommendations? When I first met Terry, I was a couple years into writing Savage Love and like a lot of sex writers and sex columnists, even sex advice columnists in the early 90s, I was writing a lot about my own adventures, my own sex life. And I met this guy who I thought was pretty hot. And he told me, once he realized that I was a sex columnist, (laughs) that I could have sex with him or I could write about the sex I was having, but I couldn't do both. So if I was going to have sex with him, I couldn't write about the sex that I was having. So I stopped writing about the sex that I was having. And I think I have Terry to thank for the longevity of Savage Love. It's never been about me. It's always been about my readers, 
was never about my adventures. It was about their adventures. And so I never hit that point that a lot of sex writers and sex columnists hit where they start – they kind of break faith or, or the readers begin to doubt the sincerity of the sex writers or sex columnists adventures and they're adventuring because it looks like a hunt for new material, not some like authentic expression of their sexual interests or desires or journey. And I never hit that point because I just wasn't writing about me because my then boyfriend, now husband, was interested in maintaining, at least at that time, some degree of privacy and not broadcasting to the world, you know, what we were up to, what we were doing together. And if, even if I just talked about what I wanted to do or what I liked doing, that was then talking about what he and I were doing and he wasn't down with that. So this is a long answer, this long way to get to just, yeah, no, I can't tell you about the erotica I read because that's going to be telling you about my sex life. And that is even now, even if you've seen his Instagram account, even now, not okay with my husband. So also, it wouldn't really work. There's a ton of erotica out there. Go to Amazon. There's self-published erotica. There is so much, like several multitudes more, the library at Alexandra's worth of just self-published dirty stories. Do what I did. Just dig around, support some independent writers working in a marginalized space, spend a couple of bucks on Books with titles that intrigue you rather than going out there and reading the ones that intrigued me. And you'll find your way to authors and genres, genres, genres that appeal to you. Can't jumpstart this process. Even if I told you who my favorite dirty story authors were and you started reading them, the odds that they would tap into your erotic subconscious or erotic inner life or erotic imagination, the way they tapped into mine are pretty slim. So – you're going to have to do the work on your own anyway, even if I gave you my list of suggested titles and authors, which, hey there, Terry, I'm not going to give you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old pansexual woman. My partner broke up um, after a year and a half of being together, as queer women tend to do. We ended up moving in together during our first year of dating, and so... When things ended, they moved out, and I stayed at our place, but I ended up having to pay, you know, double the rent since we were splitting it, and have essentially gone through all of my savings since we have broken up in order to afford, you know, the rent, and am now paying payback, which I'm not used to, um, and could maintain doing this, you know, in order to continue living by myself. But it's not really ideal. We actually decided to start talking again recently and have been talking about getting back together. We broke up for two reasons. Uh, one of the reasons was, you know, the way that they act when they get, uh, when they're under the influence, when they're drunk and they actually got, um, not violent with me, but violent with one of my friends and destroyed, you know, my property when they were super drunk one night, and so I ended things in. So that was kind of one of the main reasons why we ended things. But um, beneath that, we were also having issues because I always kind of questioned if I'm poly or not. Um, recently, I started looking back at you know, all of my past relationships and realized that I haven't been faithful in any of them. And I think that's because I 
and not a monogamous person. So I've been wanting to explore that, and I, you know, brought that to my ex's attention, and they were not really on board, were open to it, but and we realized that, you know, we just weren't on the same page, and at that point, we weren't, they weren't going to be able to accept me wanting to explore um, being non-monogamous, and I was ready for it. Fast forward to now, and they have kind of changed their viewpoint, are willing to be open. We're discussing, you know, our boundaries around what polyamory looks like for us. And another topic that we're discussing is if, you know, we do decide to get back together and have an open relationship, what do we decide to move back in together? For me, it sounds very appealing because I don't want to pay this for by myself anymore. There's something really important that's missing from your call, from what you tell me about your relationship with your ex. You talk about not being on the same page around monogamy and polyamory while you're in a relationship with them. But now you're on the same page. They're willing to go there. They're willing to consent to openness or polyamory and ain't that grand. But you don't have one word to say about whether your ex has done anything about their alcohol, anger management, violent issues. Your ex drinks, gets drunk, destroys your property, assaults your friends. That's what you got to drill down on. That's almost more important. That's actually, I'm just going to say it, even as an advocate of non-monogamy and polyamory, way more fucking important than getting on the same page about the relationship model that you would both prefer and trying to figure out if you can hammer out a compromise, whether it's DADT or something else that makes it possible for you guys to be in a relationship even though you had different feelings about the importance of a monogamous commitment. Your ex, who walked out on you or you threw them out, sticking you with the entirety of the rent, sounds like they have a drinking problem and a serious one. They need to do something about that. You need to make sure they've done something about that. You need to do for your protection your due diligence around that. You need to have a conversation with them about whether they're still drinking whether they've sought help, gotten therapy for their anger management problem, for their inclination toward or propensity for physical violence when they're drunk. You know, assaulting your friends when you're drunk is really, you should perceive that as a potential threat to you. Destroying your property is often the first move that someone who is capable of physically abusing you pulls. The first way they show you that they're capable of Physical abuse is to abuse your things or your pets. Those are very, very serious red flags. That needs to be your focus before you contemplate getting back together with this person. And if you are going to get back together with them, don't move back in together. Don't put yourself in a situation where extricating yourself from the relationship quickly and cleanly isn't an option. Tell them, sure, if they've done something about the drinking and they've sought help for their violent tendencies and gotten help about anger management, tell them, sure, we can start dating again. But like two people who are dating, we are going to have separate apartments. And if you need a roommate to help cover the rent, go get a roommate you're not sleeping with. Somebody else can be your roommate and help cover the rent. And then in a year or two, if things are going well and your ex, who is now your current, 
isn't drinking, isn't beating up your friends, isn't destroying your property when they spend the night. Maybe at that point, you can think about signing a lease together. All right, before we get to this week's batch of listener response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Why Just Because tweets, how can we not include the most important Rosario in the top three? Hashtag justice for Rosario. Hashtag savage lovecast. Why Just Because enclosed a photo of Rosario Karen's made on Will and Grace, but that was a fictional Rosario. Why Just Because? Whereas my Rosarios, St. Bartolo Rosario Longo, actress Rosario Dawson, and mobster Rosario Gambino are all actual Persons who live or once lived angry faggot tweets. I might get to meet Dan Savage. Got tickets to his book launch in Portland. He inspired this Twitter handle. And again, that Twitter handle is angry faggot. Also inspired my career path and so much more. Hashtag excited. Hashtag savage love cast. I will see you there, angry faggot. If anyone else wants to join us at the book launch event in Portland on October 2nd, it's a Saturday at Mississippi Studios. Go to savage.love and click on events for info and tickets. Squish proximity tweets. Can we talk about Dan Savage suggesting an old Doris Day film? As background viewing during an orgy on episode 777 of the Lovecast at Fake Dan Savage, you are my hero. Okay, that's all it takes to be your hero. Here are a few other recommendations for background viewing at Orgy's gay leather slasher pick Cruising with Al Pacino, the documentary, Koyana Sagatsi, and the entire first season of iCarly. And finally, a private message to Big Apple Mave. Not going to dignify your tweet by reading it on the air. You know you broke the rules, and I know you broke the rules. And that's all that matters. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And we very much appreciate everyone who posts to their social media accounts about the show helps get the word out. And now, listener response calls. This is a response to the woman from episode 777 who found herself unexpectedly in a poly relationship. I am in a similar situation, though, as the secondary partner rather than the hinge. I have asked myself a lot of the same questions, like, is it unethical for me to want this poly relationship to work, even though poly wasn't initially the plan for the open couple I'm involved with? To me, it sounds like all three of you are willing to try this, even though there are a lot of feelings to work through and still a lot of things to figure out. I thought Dan's advice to take one day at a time and allow the relationships to try was wonderful. And I hope you all are able to sort out a poly arrangement that works for the three of you. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the caller who was calling about straight men or straight presenting men at fetish events. And I just also wanted to bring up that like fetish gear looks different for different people. I'm a spanking and disciplined fetishist. And so for me, like my headspace is plain clothes. Like my thoughts are a lot like I want to be spanked by a, you know, parental type figure for example, and if that person was wearing leather, quote-unquote, fetish gear, that would not be at all headspace for me, um, and it would, frankly, take me out of the headspace. So I also just like to avoid being gatekeepy. I know, like, everything you all are saying is true, but, like, for me personally and for other people I know, like, fetish gear might look differently, like, where my fetish gear might look like dressing up <clears throat> in jeans and, like, a cute T-shirt or maybe footy pajamas or maybe a school uniform. And the tops I play with often are dressed in, you know, plain clothes. 
This is for the guy who's about to throw his first orgy for a bunch of fish freaks. I think the perfect thing to screen on the night would be Dan's Spliff Film Festival back-to-back. is chock full of very cool psychedelic imagery that seems like would be the perfect thing for that party. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064 to record your question. Or you can use your voice memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. My new book, Savage Love from A to Z, is out now in Seattle. You can join me at an event to celebrate the publication of the book. I will be at Town Hall this Friday, September 24th at 7 p.m. with KUOW's Bill Radke to chat about the book and the past 30 years of Savage Love. The ticket includes a copy of the book, and I'll be signing them after the show. Go to savage.love slash events for tickets. And Nashville, Brooklyn, and Burlington, Vermont, it is your turn to get out there and get humped. Our 2021 lineup will be playing in your cities, in theaters in your cities throughout the weekend. And don't forget, this is the final weekend to stream our Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 4 online. Go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets, streaming links, and to submit your own amateur porn film for our 2022 Hump Film Festival. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Lee Cowart on Twitter at VoraciousBrain. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.